This is Rosen Institute's Your Law Firm, covering management, marketing, finance, and new technologies for growing your law firm. Here's Lee Rosen. It's good to be with you today from Bangkok, Thailand. We're getting ready to leave, but that is assuming that we can get a negative PCR COVID test. We're going to go have our noses and our throats swabbed and see what happens because we can't fly until we've got that test. So our fingers are crossed and we'll see how that works out. If the results come back negative, then we'll be up in the air headed for our next destination. It's time for your tech tip. We're all buying and subscribing to a variety of things online today, and we're paying for those things primarily with a credit card. Now, I'm not someone who is especially worried or concerned about using my card online. I don't worry about security. That's just not the thing that I spend any energy on. But I do have an issue with using my cards online when it comes to subscriptions that may require cancellation at some point down the road. The example which comes immediately to mind for me is the Wall Street Journal. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the Wall Street Journal, but I like to have access to it from time to time. It's fairly frequent that I'll see a link to an article or someone will send me a link to an article, and I want to read that article. But you have to have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal in order to read those articles because they've got a pretty strong paywall that keeps non-subscribers away from their content. Now, the Wall Street Journal is not cheap, and I'm not willing to pay full price for my usage of their site, but I'll go ahead and sign up for the journal when I see a special deal. The reality is that I see special deals for the Wall Street Journal all the time. I've seen prices as low as $24 for a full year subscription, so I just wait until I see one of those offers, and I go ahead and sign up again. But here's the deal with signing up for one of those discount subscriptions. When your discounted year runs out, the Wall Street Journal will automatically renew you at the regular price. And that price is pretty high. And it's simply something that I'm not willing to pay because I know that if I wait a week or two, I'll see another special deal and I can just sign up with that. But in order to avoid that automatic renewal, I've got to cancel. And the Wall Street Journal makes it as difficult as they possibly can to cancel. You can't simply go online and click a button. What you've got to do is call them and you've got to stay on hold and then you've got to talk to a person and then they make you an offer, which is a good offer, but not a great offer. And so you work your way through the process and they finally agree to let you cancel and you're off and running. Well, that's just more effort than I'm willing to expend. And I understand where they're coming from. They try to make it hard so people don't cancel. But I'm pretty determined to cancel my subscription before it renews at full price. And that's where privacy.com comes in. That's your tech tip for today. Privacy.com is a service that gives you a virtual debt. Debit card. They will provide you online with a debit card. They'll give you the card number, the security code, the expiration date, and you then have all the information you need to use the debit card that they provide. Now, that debit card is linked to your actual debit card. So when you put a charge on the privacy.com card, they're going to bill you to your normal debit card. So you're not saving any money here. But what you're doing here is putting a layer between your account and the 
debit card that you're using. The debit card that Privacy.com gives you is a special debit card, and it allows you to place very strict limits on how it can be used. So, for instance, if the Wall Street Journal has one of those $24 deals for the first year, I can flip over to Privacy.com, and in just a few clicks, they will issue me a debit card. I can limit it to one charge for $24 and go ahead and input that information on the Wall Street Journal website. Once that card is used for that one charge at $24, it's dead. It's over. It's no good. Nothing can ever be charged to that debit card again. It becomes completely useless to the Wall Street Journal. And so what happens when my year runs around and the Wall Street Journal makes an effort to charge that card for the full price subscription, well, my card is declined and the Wall Street Journal cancels my subscription. I don't have to make that time-consuming and annoying phone call. I don't have to talk to that operator who is trying to get me to continue my subscription. Now, Privacy.com is not the only player in this game, but I've used them quite a few times. They're reliable. You can count on them. You set up a card, you limit it in the way you want, and you're up and running on whatever subscription you might decide that you need. The odds are good that you'll have your own use for Privacy.com. You probably have situations where this would come in handy for you beyond simply subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. Privacy.com is a good tool to have in your toolbox. That's your tech tip. And now for your moment of concise advice. Hiring is challenging. It's even more challenging today with the economy and a state of flux. Basically, hiring a new employee, it has lots in common with selling legal services. I think that they are shockingly similar. You've got to market the job that you want to fill. That requires writing a description of the role and making it sound desirable to prospective applicants. That's a lot like writing copy for your website or creating a Google ad for selling legal services. You've got to make your legal services sound desirable. Once you've written that description of the job role, you've got to take it and get that information out in front of the right people. We're used to doing that for the sale of legal services. We get our ideas and information out through our social media or by building our professional network or by advertising or some other marketing tactic. Well, it's the same deal with your job opening. You've got to get the position description in front of the right people who are looking for the kind of job that you're offering. The people that might be a good fit, need to know that you're looking for someone. So that might involve listing your job opening on employment advertising or listing sites or telling people about the opening on social networks like LinkedIn or getting the word out via your network, your real life connections. There are lots of ways to get attention for that position that you have available. An option that some folks consider is to hire an employment agency or a headhunter. Now, that's more common in larger businesses. You don't see it in very many small and medium-sized law firms. And when you do see it, it's typically when we are searching for an associate rather than an administrative position. But some folks will do that. They'll go out and pay a significant sum to a company that's in the business 
of tracking down those professionals and bringing them in for interviews so that we can consider them for the jobs. I think most of us decide not to use a company like that because the fees are high and we decide that we can simply handle this on our own without spending as much as it might cost to use one of those companies that specializes in this space. But here's something interesting that I've observed recently. When it comes to hiring virtual assistants, and I will tell you many of our Rosen Institute members are using virtual assistants, we are inclined to use an agency. I talk to lawyers all the time that are using one of several large virtual assistant agencies to locate and screen and present our members with candidates for their virtual assistant position. While we are reticent to use headhunters for hiring associates or other positions, we are much more willing to do it when it comes to virtual assistants. Now, I think part of why we don't do it when we're hiring an associate is that we can see the fees. We understand the fees. I've seen headhunters who charge a third of a year's salary or half a year, sometimes even an entire year's salary for the associate in order to find you that associate. So we see that big number, we understand it, and we back away from that, and we go find the associate through some other means. Well, with the virtual assistant, the fees are often not quite that clear. With a virtual assistant, you're often paying that fee for each hour of service or for each week or month of service. It's built into the rate for the virtual assistant. So instead of paying a lump sum like you might with the traditional headhunter, you're paying the fee for the virtual assistant a little bit at a time. It sort of sneaks up on you. But you ought to do the math because from what I've observed, the fee for these virtual assistants when you're using one of these agencies really adds up quickly. It's very significant. If you are hesitant to use an agency to hire an associate because of the fee, you might ought to be even more hesitant to use one of these agencies to hire a virtual assistant. I think we lose track of what we're paying because the fee is spread out. I think we also get caught up in the idea of hiring labor at a dramatically lower rate, especially when we're hiring someone from another country, we aren't careful about doing the analysis of what we're actually paying in this particular situation. So I'm not telling you not to use one of these agencies. I think they make a lot of sense, especially if you're new to trying out virtual assistants. They make it easy for first-timers. But once you move beyond that stage, it might make sense economically for you to become good at marketing the roles that are available in your firm, including the virtual assistant role. I've hired virtual assistants quite a few times, and sometimes I've used these services in these agencies. But more often than not, I've done things like advertise the position or spread the word through my network or go out and aggressively hunt for someone who might be interested in the role. I've used services like LinkedIn to find people and ask them if they're interested in the role. So be careful about treating the virtual assistant position differently than you might treat other positions in your law firm. If you are conservative about paying these placement fees in other roles, you ought to be equally as conservative about paying those fees for virtual assistants, especially since you might find that at least as a percentage, you're paying more. Do your research. Be conscious of how this all works and what it costs you. The reality of all of this is that we're going to spend money hiring folks, but you want to understand and 
and then make rational decisions about how you're spending that money. And because many of us are new to the virtual assistant situation, we haven't yet considered exactly how all of this works. So analyze your costs if you're hiring a virtual assistant. Be careful to understand what you're spending, especially if this is something that you haven't done in the past. That's your moment of concise advice. Wrapping up from Bangkok, thanks for spending a few minutes with me today. I hope you have a great weekend and an even better week next week. Keep plugging away, moving forward, and getting things done. You're on the right track. You'll get there, I promise. We're all in this together, and together we build better practices through better marketing, better management, and better technology. Until next time, I'm Lee Rosen. Thanks for listening to Your Law Firm. Visit rosensrules.com for our free course on the 10 critical rules all successful law firms follow.